You never can really necessarily believe what your customers tell you. Part of your responsibility as a product manager is to dig for an underlying problem. They're not lying to you. The thing that they're asking you for, the enhancement requests they're asking you for, the problem that they say they're having may really just be a symptom or a signal of something that's deeper. Hi, this is Nels Davis, and you're listening to episode 126 of the Secrets of Product Management podcast. In last week's episode, 125, I talked about how people buy fruit and vegetable juicers on the promise of the value, I'm going to be super healthy. But when it comes down to, am I willing to go through the process every morning of cleaning and preparing vegetables and then cleaning the juicer itself, a lot of people end up saying no, and then the juicer goes into the closet or the attic or the garage. The change management required to get value from the juicer is more than people are willing to, to do. And that led into a discussion of what I call the value inequality, a rule of thumb about how a prospect thinks about value and risk when buying your product. Now, in this episode, I talk more about the value inequality, in particular, how to think about it, not just from the perspective of your prospect, which is super valuable, but also when you're thinking about pitching a product idea or a new initiative to an executive from whom you'd like to get an investment. Because they perceive risks and challenges and opportunity costs, just as your prospect does, you need to manage those on the part of your executive. And the value inequality is a good mental model for helping you do that. Now, this episode is a rerun from a few years ago and itself is a repurposing of a previous presentation, which you'll hear all about in the next introduction to the original episode. You can find show notes for this episode, including all the links mentioned in the episode at secretsofpm.com slash 126. Now, this podcast, this episode is the second of two centered around what I call the value inequality, which is a way of thinking about how your customers perceive risk, the risk of buying your product or your solution versus the cost and the value that they're going to get. This episode is a bit wider ranging than the last episode, which was also focused around the value inequality. I start out talking about some of the basics of product management, in fact, in this one, finding and validating market problems with some ideas for how to make sure there's a need for you to build a solution in the first place. I segue then into using the value inequality to help when selling your product and focusing on how to use the ideas in the value inequality to drive your ability to sell more and to close more sales. Then I talk about using the same ideas to pitch new product proposals to your executive team. So this is for internal use, for approval and funding. Now in both cases, selling and the internal pitching, a lot of the challenges around reducing risk, both perceived and real, from either the customers or your investors. So I talk quite a bit about techniques for reducing risk. And just as a content note, this is actually the audio of a presentation I did. So there are a few references to things you can see on the screen, in particular a formula for the value inequality. You can take a look at that formula on the show notes for this show, and I also have a full article about that on the blog. But you don't really need to see the formula to get the point, I hope. I call it math, but it's not a real math equation. It's just a mental model, a way to think about pricing and value and risk and all those things in a way that helps you make decisions about how to put your product out there in the market, how to talk about it with customers and prospects. Now, if you like this episode, please click the like or share button in your podcast app or rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and recommendations really help other people find the podcast. And I don't know that all product managers are currently listening to my podcast. So if you share it, you might be doing somebody a real favor. That is assuming you think this is pretty good content. So let's talk about some product management basics to get started. 
you know, I talk all of, all the time about going out and finding market problems, going out and finding the talking to your customers and figuring out what their market problems are, trying to validate whether lots of people have this problem, how much the problem is worth. And there's this nice little uh, mnemonic here. Is it real? Is it worth it? And should we do it? And what that means is, is it a real problem? Is it worth solving? And are we the right people to solve that? Those are some really useful questions. First of all, there's a really important point, which is that you never can really necessarily believe what your customers tell you. And of course, when I use the term customers, in this context, it's not just actually the people that have bought our product. It's also people that might buy our product eventually, or people that bought our competitor's product, or people who are prospects. So the, I use the term customer in a very generic way. They're not necessarily just the people that bought it. But no matter who they are, you can't necessarily always believe what they told you because the, um, you know, oftentimes they don't see the big picture. They don't think about the big picture. And part of your responsibility as a product manager is to dig for an underlying problem that they have. Now they're never, they're not lying to you. That's, I'm not saying you, they're going to be lying to you. I'm saying that the thing that they're asking you for, the enhancement requests they're asking you for, the problem that they say they're having may really just be a symptom or a signal of something that's deeper. And so that's one of our responsibilities, of course, as a product manager as product managers, and I've talked about that a lot in other talks, and I can talk about that more if you would like me to in a future talk. But in the process of talking to customers and and to the market and, and learning about what their problems are and things like that, you're really trying to answer some questions. And, and again, it comes back to this, is it real, is it worth it, and should we solve it? So is it real is essentially you can think of, am I actually hearing this problem from lots of different people over and over as one of the top three issues that they have with being successful in their business. And again, it might not be necessarily a problem. Again, I'm just like the word customer, I'm using the word problem as a sort of generic. It might be an opportunity opportunity that they'd like to achieve that they can't, or it might be a desire that they'd like to uh, fulfill. Uh, typically, desires are not as important for business products, but they're very important for consumer products. And you can think about desires being things like listening to music or listening to music in a different way that's more more fun or more meaningful at the time. But for business products, which is really where my, my background is, it's typically problems or opportunities that they can't find. So you need to be able to, you need to have heard that this is something that's missing over and over again. The next thing is you want to have, make sure that customers have um, made an effort themselves to try to solve this problem. And if they, if they haven't made an effort to try to solve this problem, then it pro- might not be worth much to them. And there's different ways that they can make these efforts. They either have maybe tried to create, build their own solution, or they might have um, spent money on, or they might have tried to find another solution out in the market and failed, or even tried solutions and failed in that. And there should be some reason... Finally, there should be some reason that you should solve this problem, right? It should be aligned in some way with either your market position, your target, your objectives in the market, your strategy, uh, the things you already know how to do in terms of core competencies and technical abilities. And so those are all the things that you need to think about. So that was, is it real? Is it worth it? And should we solve it, right? Do we hear the same problem from multiple customers, multiple people that are informing us? Um, 
have they tried to solve it in the past? Meaning, have they shown willingness to spend money to solve that problem? And uh, of course, have they shown willingness to spend enough money that we will make be able to make a profit if we provide a solution? And is there a reason for us to solve the problem versus it's just some problem that somebody should solve, but not necessarily us? So those are the those are the questions you really want to be asking. If you have successfully discovered a real market problem, there's a set of things you should be able to do. The first thing is you should be able to articulate the problem that you found. You, know, you should say, I have talked to seven customers, seven people in the market, and they have expressed this particular problem that they have tried to solve and they've been able, unable to solve. You should also be able to make then an inference of the market segment who will pay for the solution to this problem, right? So you've talked to seven people, and you know what those seven people have in common, and you have a sense that there's a lot of other people that have that same set of needs, that have that same problem, that you can address as a segment. So that's the first thing. You can articulate the problem. You can articulate the market segment. The second thing is you can describe how they solve that problem today without your solution. This, again, goes to the, the point that they, they may have tried to solve the problem, they may be solving it with an Excel spreadsheet. If you're if you're doing a business application, many times the thing that precedes the actual product is a spreadsheet, an Excel spreadsheet or something like that. Or maybe they track it on paper and pencil, or maybe they try to make their ERP system manage it. These are all examples of uh, in terms of enterprise software. But there's similar things that you might think about. So for example, in music players, you could imagine in the music world, you know, people created playlists. And so they were able to, or people created mixtapes, and then later they were able to create playlists. But the fact that people spent a lot of effort creating mixtapes suggested that the ability to play, create playlists on a music player was going to be pretty useful. Uh, it was going to be a, a solution that people liked. I love using the, the music stuff because music, you know, there's so many desires and needs and things in the music world. It's very easy to get good examples. You should also be able to say how much this problem is worth to the customer to solve it. So this, this again goes to how much have they tried to spend on it? What is the, the loss that they're currently experiencing by not having a solution? And you also should be able to say how many of them there are. In other words, in this market segment, how many, what's the total addressable market? How many do we think we can reach with our, with a story about solving this problem? So this is all, this all goes to, to sort of how much money can we make if we solve this problem? Basically, how much can, will pe are people going to be willing to sell to pay for it, and how many of those people are there? And then we also want to prioritize this particular problem that we found versus other problems that we found, based at least partly on how well they're solving the problem today. There's a lot of things that go into prioritization. One of them is you may find a really great market problem out there, but they may have a decent solution for it. It's not perfect but maybe it's good enough that they don't actually care about getting a better solution. Or you may found a problem that they haven't solved very well, in which case the priority of that problem is to solve for you to create a solution is, is much higher. So that's the, just the way that I wanted to talk about that. Now, the other thing to think about in this finding a market problem world is you don't just do it once. You have to continually go out and be finding these problems because you want to have enough market problems that you found that you can make a good decision about which ones you should focus on and which ones you should not. And you actually may do a few things, and we'll talk about this in a few minutes. You may want to start with a lot of these problems and actually take the first little step to see which of these can I get the best traction on. So you may actually take a lot of the problems that you found, create little test 
situations to say, oh, can I get people to sign up on a web page for with more, for more interest on this problem, or can I get maybe can I talk to some customers and see if they'll help me fund the development of this problem, or or do I is there a technical risk and can I spend a little time to determine if I can overcome that technical risk? So those are all the sorts of things you're going to start doing experiments with, and you need to have a big bunch of problems found in order to have a good enough funnel that at the end you found up enough enough problems worth pursuing that you can continue to keep your new product pipeline full. You need to also be, so you need to be constantly reaching out to the market to find new problems and to validate you need to keep your funnel filled. It's not just, you don't just go out and find a, a market problem to solve. You want to find multiple market problems to solve. And then you get to make a decision about which one's the best one. And then you prioritize that, the funnel of problems based on the strategy, based on the risk, based on all the factors that you've determined are important. I talked before about how to use your strategy to help you prioritize. And this is the exact thing that you would be prioritizing. You'd have this funnel of problems that are coming in, and you would use your strategy and objectives to help you prioritize those. And the strategy is going to include things like, I want customers to be satisfied, current customers. I want to be able to get new customers. Um, I want to be able to address competitive threats. And I want to achieve what other business objectives the organization has set for the future. So those are the types of things that we want to do with our strategy. I, I wanted to lay out the relative importance of problems versus value. Not so much the importance of problems, it's the source of problems. And so there's lots of startups and, and you know, we all have really good ideas or we think they're good ideas. Um, and lots of startups have been founded on it, on an idea. Problem with our ideas, if we just start a startup based on our ideas, is that the chances are good and this has been proven over and over again, that nobody cares about our ideas. And so you have to, even if you have a good idea, you actually have to go out and validate with the market that it's a good idea. You can also start a business based on your customer's ideas or create a new feature or create a new product category or something like that based on your customer's ideas. And those are often good as well. But if you just, again, just go from what the customer says without doing further research and validation, you are you may make some money that may be somewhat valuable, but it's not going to be as valuable if you as if you actually go out and do the work and validate the problem and maybe find out what the underlying problem is and things like that. Now I have this concept that I call the weak signal. You have to talk to lots of customers, lots of people out in the market to really find out what the real problem is out there. And so this means things like, um, well, you might hear one little piece of a problem from one person, and you might hear another little piece of the problem from another person, and another little piece from a third person. And you have to, as a product manager, your job is to, is to note that you heard these three pieces that by, each by themselves was not that interesting. But when you combine them, turned into a signal that was about a problem that was unsolved out in the market. And this has happened to me a lot. I don't have a really great example to give you off the top of my head. But you talk to customers a lot and you start hearing things. And sometimes they seem slightly interesting or maybe they don't even seem interesting. But later on you hear something else from another customer and you say, oh, there is something interesting there. So the point is to say that detecting those weak signals, that's where the real money is. And the real money is there for a couple reasons. One is that oftentimes at that point, customers don't even recognize that they have that problem, even though it may be significant. More importantly, your competitors don't recognize that that problem is out there unless they've gone through the same process. In which case, it means you have some, some runway to establish a market presence with a solution. Of course, it also means it's a little bit challenging to sell potentially because... Customers, again, may not know that they have the problem. But if you've done careful listening and you have 
careful notes about what you've heard, you can do some things to reduce that risk of customers not knowing that they have the problem. Like you can say to them, well, you told me you this was a challenge for you, or you told me this, and how are you solving it? Um, and then you can, and they can say, well, we don't have a solution. And then you can say, well, how important is that? And then they can, they can say, that's actually pretty important. And I hadn't really thought about that. And then you can start talking about how you have a solution for it. Anyway, so there's pluses and minuses to finding those weak signals is the point. But in general, that's where, uh, generally speaking, a lot of the money is, is in those, those weak signal kinds of ideas. So let's talk now about how we then convince our customers to buy our stuff if we have a solution. And also we'll talk a little bit about how to get our executives and investors to invest in our creation, creating a solution. I think of the value and equality as a sort of a key concept of, of pricing. It's sort of the underlying idea behind value-based pricing, or it, it extends the idea of value-based pricing. You know, if you go on, onto Google and you look up pricing, people will tell you, or how do you do pricing? People will essentially give you two ideas. One is, well, figure out how much it costs you to make the thing and then price it higher than that. And that's called cost-based pricing because it essentially is cost plus whatever whatever um, profit you want to make. The other way is to think about is called value-based pricing. What is the value to the customer of this solution? Meaning, what is how, how much does the pain that you're solving cost? That's a way to think about it. And then you charge somewhat less than that. So that you're, you're, you're giving the amount of value that the customer gets is, is, is more than what you charge them. The problem is that in reality world, that's the world that we all actually live in as opposed to the world of theory. Um, the customer in order to make the buying decision needs to perceive that they're getting lots more value, not just a little more value, but a lot more value from their solution than what their cost is. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. Um, now, this is also a concept that's really useful for thinking about getting a project funded. So if you're talking to your executives about, well, I found this market problem out there. It's worth X. And so please give me 90% of X to go create that solution. Well, they're not going to go for that because that 10% difference is not, that's not a good return on investment for them. You know, just at a, at a very rough level, even if you aren't using an ROI kind of argument, that's not going to going to fly. Um, and there's there's different reasons for that. I mean, first of all, a 10% ROI is not very good. But also, how do they? How can they be confident that your solution is really going to return all that money, that X amount of money that you claimed? Um, there's a lot of risk involved. And so risk becomes a really big thing. And it actually becomes a big thing for both customers as well as for investors. So I have come up with this idea called the value inequality, where essentially I say that if you think about the the value that the customer gets when their problem is solved. So that's, let's say that's X. Well, I, in my equation, I call it V, but there's a certain amount of money that a certain amount of money or money like value that they get from having their problem solved. But to get that, they have to pay a certain amount of money to us, but they also have a factor of risk. How likely is it that our solution is actually going to solve their problem? And I know, I know you've probably heard lots of stories about people that implement enterprise software, for example, and they spend hundreds of millions of dollars or tens of millions or whatever it might be, and then they have to tear it all out because it didn't actually work for them. right? This is the type of risk that people are worried about. Another example is, you know, like I recently bought a webcam. I've got a new webcam now. I've been using my laptop's webcam. I'm still, I still am. So I got a new webcam, and I had to spend a certain amount of money on it. 
And what is the risk of that webcam that will not actually make my Facebook Lives any better? Well, there's some amount of risk there. So I have to think about that when I make the decision to buy the webcam. Now, lots of people have recommended this webcam as a good one for doing Facebook Live and other things. So I thought, well, that those recommendations kind of mitigate the risk, and that's going to go on with the rest for the rest of the story. Another aspect that comes into it from the customer standpoint that offsets the value is the cost of making the change. So if you think about, again, enterprise software, if you think about I'm going to buy a new ERP system, that's the back office system that handles accounting and manufacturing and all kinds of stuff, making the change to the new system from my old system is going to be extremely costly. I have to change, I have to move all my data, which is oftentimes very difficult. I have to train, retrain everybody, blah, blah, blah. There's all these costs of change. So is the additional value I'm going to get, does that over, is that a lot greater than the cost of the change, which is going to be, which I know in advance is going to be very painful. And this is, there's always change, even like with my webcam, my webcam example, I am going to have to figure out a whole bunch of different things in order to make use of this webcam, like my lighting, my lighting, which currently works pretty well for my laptop webcam in my first test doesn't work well for my new webcam. So I'm gonna have to figure out how to solve that problem. And so that's a change management cost for me. And I knew there would be some costs like that. It's also a much wider angle lens, which means that I have to figure out where to put the cameras, where to position it and how to deal with that. So that's just another example of change management. Then there's a factor of the opportunity cost. Okay, so the customer could buy our solution for that particular problem, or they could solve a different problem by buying a different solution. How much value do they get from solving that other problem? If they chose to go with that other solution versus us, that's an opportunity cost, right? Because they could spend their money elsewhere, basically. So those are, those are all the components of the value inequality. Now, I've drawn some cool pictures here. And if you can't see the pictures, that's too bad. But the pictures basically, so if you're a sales, this, let's assume this guy on the teeter-totter is a salesperson. And the salesperson is not happy because what has happened is, in the story that he or he can tell about the value of the solution, risk and change management are not well handled. So basically, the customer's perception is that risk is really high and change management cost is really high. Now, the happy sales guy, he's really happy because even though the price has not changed, it's still just the same price, he has managed to convince the customer or persuade the customer that the risk of making the change is not that high and the change management cost is not that high. There's obviously multiple ways of achieving this goal of reducing the risk factor and of reducing the change management factor. One is to tell a better story, and one is to actually make it, is to actually lower that actual risk. We can talk about both of those things. So if you think about the value inequality and you think about it in terms of pricing, you might want to say, well, how can I, how can I charge more for my thing rather than even keeping it the same? Charging more also sort of encompasses the idea of actually being able to sell versus not being able to sell. So overcoming the buying objections so that you can make the sale. How do you make P bigger or how do you make sure that you can close those sales? Well, one option is to make the value bigger. What that means is that if you can find a bigger problem to solve with your, pro with your solution, then you can charge more oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes. Um, or you find a segment, this is actually a, a probably often a better choice, find a segment for whom the problem is more urgent. And this is a good way to get your product out into market in the first place. If you have read Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore, this is a topic that he talks about. He says, it, this is the bowling pin strategy, if you've, if you've read the book. 
And basically what you do is the head pin is the, is the sub-segment of the market that has the most urgent need for a solution. And so you go and capture them, and then by capturing, as, after you capture them, you then go to the next sub-segment that has the next most urgent level of need. And at that point, your product is probably somewhat refined. It may solve a few more problems. You can actually think about the problems of that next sub-segment and address those. And that's a way that you can ramp up your sales because you're selling to the people that have the most urgent need. If you try to sell to everybody, we all know that if you can't sell to everybody. You have to sell to the people that have your problem. But if you can find amongst the people that have your problem, the people that have it worse or worst, then you might be able to sell to those people more easily. The next thing you can do, of course, is you can reduce risk. And what does this mean? The ri- this is the risk of not getting the value that you promised. Again, I bought my Logitech webcam, and if I end up not being able to use it, then that was a risk that, that you know, there's a risk of that. And so how do I mitigate that? Well, so there's a lot of different ways you can do it. One is you can make it so it works better, so it's easier to get started, so it more definitely, more definitively solves the problem. But oftentimes this risk thing is a perception. It's not actual. You know, oftentimes you're confident that if your customer takes on your product and does it right, that they will be successful. And so from your perspective, their risk is very small. But from their perspective, they don't trust you. You're a sale, you know, that's a salesperson saying saying that. It might be the product manager. What's a good way to reduce risk in that situation? Well, one way is to get customer stories and testimonials where customers like the prospect, either they say, I was worried about this and it was really easy, or they just say it was really easy and it was really successful, whatever. So this is a, a, re, a really good reason to have good customer stories because you can use them to address this type of objection in your sales process. Then the other, the next thing you can think about is how to reduce the cost of change. There's a lot of different ways, and all, mostly these are technical, more technical. Customer stories don't help as much in this, although you can use customer stories if, in fact, the cost of change is, is not high, but the customer, the prospect perceives that the cost of change will be high, then this is another place to use a customer story. But if you do have change issues, then you do things, you think about things like backward compatibility, data compatibility, ease of use, online training, those sorts of things can help reduce the cost of change and the perception of the cost of change. And then you make sure that for the opportunity cost, you have to make sure that you're trying to sell a solution to one of the more important problems that the prospect has. If you're selling to an unimportant problem, they're likely to use their money elsewhere. Those are all some ideas about how to think about the value prop- the value inequality from the standpoint of the cu- of a customer. Now, this also does imply- apply it internally as well. So you can use the value inequality to help think through how you're going to sell your product ideas or your projects internally. You know, this is a, the type of situation where you, you have a, a set of projects that, that represent new solutions out to the market, and maybe some of them are risky, but they're bigger, and some of them are less risky, but they're smaller in terms of the investment. And so how do you make use of the value and equality thinking to help you sell those, those products out uh, to your executives so they will fund them? And so, again, you have to think about the, th- the same things, right? So in this case... In this version of the value inequality, the, the term on the left, the V, the value, is the money we're going to make. I'm going to pitch to you, this is a billion-dollar opportunity. We can make a billion dollars if we build this solution. R is the perceived risk that it, that we won't achieve that. I have this opportunity to make a billion dollars, but you know there's a 60% chance we won't succeed. So give me $500,000 to do that, $500 million to do it. Well, the executives are going to say, wait, that doesn't 
that doesn't pencil out very well. So R is that risk. So you, so in this case, you're going to be wanting to reduce the risk that you that it won't succeed. C is the change we have to go through to deliver. And this is often things like we need to develop some new technology or find some new technology or we need to create a new way of reaching customers. There's all different types of change that can be impacted by a new product, a new solution that you want to take to market. And then obviously O is the other projects that we could do. And maybe there's a lot of other more sure, sure uh, lower risk projects, but they have lower payoffs. And so how do we make that argument that, that our project should be funded? Well, in this case, risk is usually the biggest problem. Particularly if you're talking about a super big ticket solution, I want to. Ma- I think I can make. We can make a billion dollars on something. Well, the risk of not actually making a billion dollars and actually making zero dollars is pretty high, and so you need to be able to address that. How do you lower that risk? And in fact, a lot of times, what you do by lowering the risk is you use different ways of sort of accounting for how you're going to spend the money. You ask for the money in different ways. You don't. So let's say that you're going to make this billion dollar product. You think it's going to cost you $200 million to build in the first place. And so that's a decent ROI. If you can make a billion dollars for a $200 million investment, that's a pretty good ROI. But there's a lot of risk. So what you do is instead of asking for $200 million to start, you ask for $60,000 to start to do some experimentation and to reduce the risk that you won't achieve the ultimate billion dollar goal, right? So what, what would you be doing to reduce that risk? Well, there's so many different things you could do. One is you could, you know, make a landing page saying, hey, I've got this, we're, we're building this solution. Would you like to be notified when the solution comes out? Typically, that's not a billion dollar product type of thing to do, but it's a, t- it's a type of thing where you can test, is there actually some market demand for a solution to this problem? And that might be a, a more typical for a, cus- a, cus- a consumer type of solution or a small business type of solution, something like that. But there's a lot of different ways to do this innovation funding that makes much more sense than just saying, well, give me $200 million to create this very risky solution. Because the fact is that these high-risk high risk projects, they often really look bad from the standpoint of ROI, from the standpoint of expected value. And so you need to do some upfront reduction of that risk to the point where you can legitimately ask for you know, $100 million in funding because you've really validated that, that is, you're going to get a good return on that. There's various different ways to do this. There's, uh, you can create different resource buckets. Get a lot of these in the, if you read the StageGate books. You can use things like spirals or iterative development and the Lean Startup. The Lean Startup is designed to reduce risk. That's part of its purpose. And there's a really cool op- idea called Innovation Options. Uh, a guy named David Benetti has talked about this. He actually talked about it on my podcast. I'll put a link to the podcast in the show notes and a link to his site and things like that. The reason you have to handle this stuff, these this risk stuff where you, you go on with your innovative pr- solutions, even though they're very risky, is because if you don't, the innovator's dilemma starts to come into play. And what I mean by that is if you are not creating the new products that are going to replace your existing products, then one of your competitors is going to do it. And if they do it, that means that you go out of business eventually, and that's not good. So that's, the, that's really the reason that you need to pay attention to this. So how do you do the risk reduction? Well, so one of the things is an innovation funding model where you essentially start a risky project by doing some low-cost risk reduction investigations. As you reduce different risks, then your expected value, you know, the probability of failure goes down a little bit. And there's different ways to track this in sort of numeric ways. If you say, well, from the outset, my probability of failure is 
50%, and then you spend $100,000 to learn some things about the, some more things about the market and to make sure you can do the technology, the technology, and that reduces your probability of failure to 40%, then that enables you to get another tranche of funding. So maybe you get $300,000 to do the next step. If it goes well, it's going to reduce your probability of failure to 30%. And of course, if you find out that it doesn't reduce your probability of failure, the additional investigation, you kill the project at that point because you say, we, we're not confident that we can reduce our risk enough to make it worth doing. But you want to do it in that stepwise way, whereas originally at the, at the beginning, the project looked very bad, but we didn't invest very much in order to make a little bit of progress. And then you keep going in that way. And you have to make those kind of investments in order to keep your product pipeline full. There's also this idea of innovation options. It's very similar to financial options, the idea where you, you pay a small amount now to buy some stock at today's price, but you don't actually buy it at today's price. You don't actually buy it. You just pay for the right to buy it. And then a month from now, if the stock has gone up, you exercise that option, meaning you get to buy the stock at today's price, and then you can sell it at that month from now price, and you make a little profit. And you had to pay a little bit you had to pay what's called an option. You had to pay for what's called an option. Well, you can use this same idea for doing innovation, and it's roughly the same the same thing. You can say, well, there's a billion potential billion dollar thing down the road, but I want to buy an option, or I want finance to fund me for an option to reduce the risk of delivering that thing by five percent. Uh, and and what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the money that you invest now. I'm going to work on reducing that risk, and if I can show that I've reduced the risk by five percent in a month or in a quarter, whatever it might be, then that means that you exercise your option to then spend more money on doing the next, um, the next investment tranche. So it's a, it's a cool idea. One of the reasons it's really nice is that it's pretty understandable to finance people because it uses the same model as investment options. And finance people typically know the investment option model pretty well. Uh, so it puts a financial structure around these risky investments and it enables you to figure out exactly how much each step of the each step of the risk reduction process should cost to the to the organization. You can look at more information about that at innovation-options.com. I'll put a link in the in the comments below. The other thing, another way to reduce risk, and this is really great. There's a great story by a guy named Shigeo Shingo. He was a Japanese industrial engineer, and he was primarily responsible for the Toyota production system, which in the 70s. Uh, 60s and 70s really transformed Japanese industry from being what was considered to be fairly low quality to being considered the highest quality uh, manufacturing in the world and the most responsive and things like this. And this is Shigeo Shingo was very involved in that. He wrote a number of books and he talked about all these different ways of addressing different challenges in manufacturing, you know, in terms of reducing errors and improving quality and things like that. But this is one of my favorite stories from his book called the sayings of Shigeo Shingo. And it's basically the idea that he was talking to somebody who had worked with somebody, <laughs> sort, of, sort of multiple levels of indirection in this story. But anyway, this the president of this diesel company, of a diesel motor company, had a new had an idea for a new type of motor. And if he and it was going to be more efficient or whatever the benefits were going to be. And so he asked his engineering team, I'd like to see a prototype of this tomorrow. And the engineering team said, It'll take it'll take us four weeks to do that. And he said, Well, I don't like that answer. And what he did is he got another junior engineer and a pattern maker. Those are the people that sort of make metal parts in the machine shop. And he said, okay, we're just going to build it ourselves over in the next two days. And so he drew the drawings. The junior engineer 
took the drawings to the pattern maker. The pattern maker went on his in his machine shop and just made the parts, and they put it all together, and they had a machine, a new motor to test in a day, or in two days. Now, the point of this is that this was a non-scalable process that he did, right? And so oftentimes there's non-scalable things you can do to reduce risk. You can go build something by hand. The, there's a great example of this in the Lean Startup book, which is the idea of the concierge, the concierge model, where you talk about the, the product that you're pitching or the solution you're pitching is a fully automated thing. But in fact, instead of it being fully automated for the initial test, it's actually just handled manually by some people. So maybe you want, maybe you want to do a food ordering startup. And so you give people this option of ordering a bunch of different food, maybe groceries on a website. And then the website says, oh, thank you for your order. We're going to pack, our robots are going to package it up and send it to you. Well, in fact, it's not robots. It's people that are, that are picking out the, they go to the local grocery store and they pick out the stuff, they package it up and they drive it to the person. And so this is the idea of a concierge, concierge model. And it's not scalable. You couldn't have a company where that actually happened. But what you can do is you can test out whether, will, will anybody buy this? Will anybody use it? Will they like it? Will it work for them? What are the what other issues that we haven't thought about already are going to come up in the process of delivering this? And so that's the type of thing that you think about with these non-scalable kinds of approaches. But I think this idea of building a motor in two days is kind of cool. And obviously it's not the type of, you couldn't put that motor in a car because it hasn't gone through manufacturability, blah, blah, blah. But you can build a motor in a day if you know what you're doing and you and your criteria for what that motor has to tell you is very simple. Like, does it work? Does it have lower emissions than the normal motor? You know, you don't have to build a real motor. You just have to build enough of the motor to be able to do that test. Anyway, so that, I, one of my favorite stories. I'll put a link to the book uh, down in the, sh- in the notes as well. So finally, let's think about the takeaways today. Uh, think about risk and change management from the customer's or investor standpoint. And your big goal is how do you reduce these? These are really big, important questions for both customers and investors. And you need to have strategies for customers the strategies involve, well, making the product better at doing the thing it's the problem it's supposed to solve. But a big part of it is getting good customer stories that help the customer recognize that, oh, for people like me, this has worked well in the past. For the investors, it's doing things like innovation options and having buckets for risk so that they don't just de- de- rely on this very simple-minded ROI calculation, which can be very misleading and can help them, can lead them to the wrong decision about doing innovation. And then going back to the earlier part, can you articulate the customer problem that you're solving with your solution? And can you articulate the things around that, like how many people have it, how much they're willing to pay? If you can't do that, it's very hard to make an argument that you should create that solution. And it's very hard for, if you can't articulate that stuff, then imagine how difficult it is for your customer to figure out whether they should buy it or not. You have to be able to do that. And then uh, use innovation options and risk budgets to manage and reduce the risk of your new projects. That's the other takeaway. Okay, well, I hope that gave you some great new mental models for thinking about value and price and risk for your products and how to reduce and manage risk especially. And maybe it gave you some new ideas for how to strategize about doing internal persuasion, you know, such as trying to get funding for a new product or a new feature that you want to build. You know, with the value and equality in your mental toolbox, you will become better at persuasion. At least I think you will. And I think it makes you more confident in general about pitching your product because you're thinking about all the different dimensions that the customer might be concerned about. I hope you enjoyed that rerun of part two of the Value and Equality podcast. 
For more information and to leave a comment or subscribe to the podcast, check out the show notes at secretsofpm.com slash 126. There are links to all kinds of different articles and other podcast episodes you might find valuable and related to the value and equality. If you like this episode, please consider rating and reviewing it in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I encourage you to share it with your friends if you think they could use tips on product management or marketing or innovation, sales and persuasion, all the things that we talk about on this show. You know, speaking for myself, who can't get better at all these things? I listen to a lot of podcasts to try to learn new things. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, this is Nels Davis. Bye-bye.